Well, 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 hello and welcome hipstorians to this week's episode. We will be speaking with Michael Burley, or should I say we spoke to Michael um, on the day of the Queen's funeral, so a little while ago now, and really delighted to be getting this episode out now. We really enjoyed the conversation. We hope you do too. Michael, you're, you're literally, um, just to kick it off, to thank you for your time on, on the historians. You're literally on the doorstep of history as we speak. Hmm. Uh, so yeah. yeah. <laughs> that's, a mixed, that's a mixed blessing with crowds everywhere and helicopters mm. all over the place. Yeah. Uh, I thought, uh, I mean, for what my penny worth of thoughts are, and I'm not a royal historian, which may maybe be a plus point here, um, <laughs> I thought that the thing has been going on so long, you know, mm. since she died, mm. that uh, the, the funeral service itself was totally unmoving. I just found really? it utterly unmoving. Yeah, I watched it, was expecting, you know, eventually I would feel sad or something, but I didn't because I've just mm. been exposed. You can't switch the television or the radio on at any time of day without the coverage of this. Mm. Yeah. And it's just yeah. too much. I think they got it completely wrong because they drained all the emotion out of it. Right. Something that they're good at, I suppose, in, in some yeah, ways. Yeah, very good at media, that. Media. I mean, I'm not a monarchist, so mm. you know, maybe I'm the last person you should talk to about this, but I just, just found it very, very unmoving. Well, let's tell our listeners, Derek, who Michael Burley actually is then. Yeah, I suppose. Okay, so it's your, your literary background... Um, Michael, you know, you've been, you were a senior academic for about 18 years, um, at which point uh, you decided you were going to be a full-time history writer. Um, the book that I suppose that introduced uh, myself to your work was Third Reich. Um, and uh, yeah, thoroughly enjoyed that many years ago. And uh, that was when I was kind of really seriously getting into, into history. Um, small Wars in Faraway Places, Moral Combat, uh, Sacred Causes, and your most recent uh, two books, Populism, Before and After the Pandemic, and The Day of the Assassins. Um, there's definitely a bit of a, a religious uh, theme that runs through uh, a, lot, a lot of your work, which I think is, is very valid and I agree with. Um, and uh, just to say that you have won the Samuel Johnson Prize for Nonfiction in 2001, and in 2017, you won the Nomino International Master of His Time Prize for your lifetime's work and uh, and well deserved indeed does, does that make you feel old michael yes what lifetime's yeah. work yeah, it feels like it's over yeah. doesn't it well i had a big i had a big spurs of activity during the pandemic you know during the lockdown because yeah. i finished two books both the short one which was some lectures i gave at the lsc where i work and uh, and also the assassins book so you know, I finished both of those books. The second lockdown, I painted the whole of our house. That was definitely <laughs> well because I've got such chronic backache and trouble with my arm from RSI from the writing stint that I thought, well, right. I'm going to do something very physical, and I enjoyed it. I listened yeah. to a lot of very good music. You know, while I was doing it, it took me about three months, but there you go. Oh wow! And did you stretching. do? Did you do a good job then? Well, it looks like it. I can see it in the uh, background. My wife thinks so, yes. Which well, that's is, the most important thing. That's, that, that's actually what I meant. <laughs> I, have to, I was much less uh, sort of splattering it around than I would have done when I was 18 or 20. You know, I've got very cautious. And, of course, the big difference from when I was a kid is that you've got YouTube. So if you ever run into any difficulties with something you can't do or, you, you know, mm. defeat you, you just look it up and you've got 10 that's films of Bob, <laughs> Bob from Texas showing you how to do it. You know, it's fantastic. <laughs> Oh, yeah. really? Is. Yeah, everything. Yeah, and, and I suppose just as a, as a little one, it might be you know some you know, somewhat we might be expecting, but just a little bit about your childhood. I'm always interested to to find out what maybe led people into this thing of history, because mm. I mean a lot of people find it dead boring and complete waste of time, which is obviously yeah. the opposite to our views. Um, but uh, I'd be interested to know a little bit about uh, about your background. Well, f first of all, just genetically. I come from a family where people have children very late in life. So my grandfather, my grandfather's dates are 1840 to 1914. Wow. And then my father was born in 1895 and then went on to fight in both the First and the Second World Wars. Oh. Obviously, I didn't meet my grandfather, you know, in 1914. Yeah. Mm. And my father died when I was quite young. But um, so 
just genetically, I had a sense of, you know, long periods of time. I mean, believe it or not, my, my grandfather fought in the American Civil War as a 20-year-old. I, re I regret to say for the Confederacy. Uh, he, did try, he, did try the union, he did try the Union first. And then he, he covered every major 19th century war as a war correspondent. So, for, you know, for example, he was at Omdurman. I wow. bought a set of toy soldiers of Omdurman once, and there was a little party of war correspondents, one of whom was my grandfather, a little lead. That's Fred. That's amazing. Um, so there, there, there's, there's, there's the answer. There's yeah. the answer right there. And then, you know, the last war he covered was the um, Turkish-Italian War in Libya in 1911. And then he, he was, you know, he died actually, ironically, in June 1914, before the big one, as it yeah. were. Uh, so that was the first thing. And then the second thing was where I grew up, because I, I grew up partly every summer in the, on the south coast, mm. Sussex. And near where we lived there were world war ii pillboxes mm. you know which i used to play in they smelled of piss all the time for some reason yeah <laughs> they, um, they always do and mm. uh then there were martello towers from the napoleonic wars you know those sort of round mm. stone gun towers which they were stopped a french invasion but then yeah. there was pevensey castle and the thing about that was was that I sort of worked out very early that the actual keep, you know, the main castle bit was Norman. But then I thought, well, those walls don't look the same. And of course, the Normans had built this fortress inside a former Roman fort. And that was what the walls were. They were Roman. So even as a small boy, I sort of knew that the walls were a thousand years older than the castle. And wow. then the castle was a thousand years before us. Yeah. I had a yeah. very strong sense of time. Yeah, and I think that's a very and also, you know, from that one then gets more sophisticated thoughts that these people were really not like you and I. They had not, you know, they, they would have been completely different in their mindset. Everything mm -hmm. about them would have been different from us. So mm -hmm. I've always been very interested in that. That's the sort of long answer. Yeah, yeah no, that's 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 yeah. the answer right there. You you, you know, you, you identified very for a young age the, the layers of history, history yeah. upon you're very lucky to grow up in a place that's just accidental yeah, yeah. Hmm. extraordinary stuff extraordinary stuff but then like your history covers big small the small wars up to the, the big picture stuff hitler the third oh, Reich. Well, the picture the picture stuff is very interesting because i used to before i became a historian i, I actually wanted to study painting and i oh. used to paint a lot and all my books are basically painted uh, they are yeah. they are quite literally in the sense I used to design all my books um, on big bits of hardboard. You know, I'd design the entire book. I actually quite interested. I watched a documentary about James Joyce's Ulysses uh, last mm. week. Very good documentary. I strongly recommend it. Mm -hmm. And he had he had these enormous sketchbooks where he filled it with. Um, you know, the things that were going into the book, which he crossed out in red, I think, and then the things that he was going to put in at proof stage, which were in blue. He must have been a publisher's nightmare to work. <laughs> and I was very interested in how he did these, and he jotted down all sorts of things and did little drawings. And I thought, yeah, you know, that's how I used to start off with my books, with these hardboard, pieces of hardboard. But yeah. the, books are, the books are actually much more... They're purely technical exercises for me to a far greater extent than I think people who read them will write about them think. You know, I'm okay. actually just trying to solve a series of technical compositional problems. How do I, you know, put a huge subject, which some of my books are really global, like Small Wars, how do I reduce yeah. that to a book of four or 500 pages? Mm. How is it done? And so yeah. I'm thinking much more in those sort of terms than about the actual content. Okay, right. that's interesting. That is. And I'm not vastly of... interested in, I don't know, Eisenhower or Ho Chi Minh or whoever it is. It's actually how I'm, how I'm designing this picture. That's how it was. Wow, that's very insightful. Very interesting. Yeah, yeah. Well, yeah. So, so what is your specific interest then? Like when it, when it comes to history, if it's not the the big names, the conflicts, are you, are you hooking other messages onto it? For example, the morality is, is an interesting... Yeah, uh, well, that, that interests me because, as, as I said earlier, that, that 
you know, I'm very interested in the fact that earlier civilizations or peoples were really not like us. You know, they looked at the world in an extreme, very different way, which would include their moral systems or attitudes to life and death or whatever. I mean, if we were Vikings, I mean, the, the worst nightmare I could think of would be somebody hitting me with an axe or ramming a sword into me. But um, if, I was, if I was a Viking, I would regard this as great because I'd be going to Valhalla quite shortly afterwards <laughs> where I could have battles into eternity. So, I'm, you know, that's a simplistic way of putting it, but I'm just very interested in, in the sort of different moral codes, if you like, of people. And I, I actually wrote a whole history of um, the Second World War. I thought this is a challenge, which was to design the whole thing around moral criteria, to take yeah. obvious things like the morality of appeasement, for example, yeah. or of strategic bombing or, you know, of what mm. it's like. I, I actually got very interested in, in the whole problem of high command of what it's like to be a general and this was at a time when every book was about the sort of worm's eye view, the ordinary soldier's mm -hmm. experience. And I got very interested in, well, what's it like to actually be in charge of the lives and deaths of hundreds of thousands, if not millions of people? The short yeah. answer is that if you're like Eisenhower, you smoke 90 camel lights to yeah. cigarettes a day, which yeah. I was just stunned by. You mm -hmm. know, the amount of stress you must be under to do that. Absolutely. And there's a very, very vivid depiction of Ike in his, in his trailer just before, in the 24 hours, 48 hours before D-Day, when yeah. a storm front rolled in and he did, they had just this narrow window and he yeah. sat in the trailer, he said, chain smoking one after another. And it yeah. was on his words, famously, let's go. That's yeah. not sealed the fate for yeah. hundreds of thousands straight oh, away. Yeah. Yeah, no, I mean, and actually, if you look into, um, you know, I, I'm, I'm doing some work at the moment, which involves looking at First World War German generals, mm. and quite strikingly, the number of them who had mental crack-ups, I mean, not least Moltke the Younger, the yeah. chief general staff just literally cracked up within three or four months of the war starting. But the number who have heart attacks or strokes, even though externally they wouldn't be manifesting any stress they certainly wouldn't let anybody know it if they were under yeah. stress he did though um you know they just they died i mean the stress yeah. of them. it's quite extraordinary and it, it's fair considered i mean certainly when i read moral combat um, hmm. that definitely influenced how i thought you know about war and and introduced me to another layer of history which i then went in search of after that so um but it, it is uh, you know i suppose <laughs> Which I do, you know. Interestingly, I was on the government's um, uh, sort of commission for commemorating World War One for about six years, and everybody else on the committee, well, apart from former politicians, they were um, basically generals and admirals and air vice marshals. And a very interesting thing was that they had so internalised, you know, the, the historiographical fashion for the worm's eye view. This was all going to be about the common man, you know, so that little little Johnny knew what his great grandfather did in the First mm -hmm. World War. I was the only one sitting there saying, "Yes, but what about what about the generals and the commanders, and you know, how did they fight these battles?" And and the room went deadly silent because they were not yeah. going to go there. Mm -hmm. And these, were, you know, there was a marshal there, there were air vice marshals, admirals, and they were not going to do it. So I thought it was really interesting. That they had become so sort of, you know, politically sort of orthodox in a way with the spirit of the time. It was quite extraordinary. It really is uh, absolutely because we did the, the, what, like that history did become that you know, and that's kind of it made arguably history accessible to younger readers coming up because you know it did take yeah, the, yeah, yeah. the Johnny Johnny in the trenches viewpoint. Yeah, yeah. but then but it moved it, away. It, it moved away from. It. It shouldn't be done at the expense of the people who are actually ordering Johnny or Ivan or Igor or whatever into battle. Mm, <laughs> yeah. them. They shouldn't just be left out as if they were somehow not important. Yeah. Um, Your book about the Third Reich delves into the, the morality. I mean, obviously, you know, there, there's a viewpoint, uh, an easy one, that one side is good, the other side bad, right? That's... Mm how it's been the second world war has been portrayed but you see it's a bit more nuanced than that michael there was there was bad would it be fair to say bad moral decisions made by the allies which 
some revision of what history is now starting to look at the bombing of Dresden just one example is, mm. is that something that you know you felt needed to be said um I don't know I mean it's so long ago since I wrote that book I mean I spent five years of my life in a basement in my house in Greenwich basically writing it eyeball to eyeball with the snails outside in the <laughs> garden it just feels like something I did a long time ago I, when know, I, indeed. I, yeah. I never I never really take my books off the shelves and um and look at them again once I've finished. Yeah. That seems a bit sort of counterproductive. But um, you know, I take it down sometimes. I think, well, how the hell did you do all this? You know, yeah, <laughs> really. <laughs> My God, you know, what did you? And then there are earlier books of mine where the level of. Uh, work that's gone into it particularly my book on the nazi euthanasia program death and deliverance mm. Mm. I, mean, I take i've taken that down once or twice just to look up something somebody a student or whatever has asked me to you know give them a reference mm. and i vividly remember sitting in an archive in uh, ludwigsburg in germany which was the place it was the, the judicial authorities who prosecuted you know nazi war crimes basically in the federal Public. And I remember working through the papers of a psychiatrist who was one of the co-organisers of this programme, and it was a series of uh, pros court prosecution documents against him. And uh, he had got away with it until he'd, he'd gone underground under an under a assumed name or something, and he was working as a sort of sports doctor in Flensburg in northern Germany. And one night he and his wife went to a party and there were lots of sort of professorial snobs at the party. And his wife got more and more angry about they were just rather dismissive towards this lowly sports doctor. And she burst out, she said, don't you know who you're talking to? This is the famous psychiatrist, professor of psychiatry, Professor Werner Heider. And at that point he was arrested. She sort of oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so anyway, just let me finish this. So anyway, uh, the the various documents to do with his prosecution for doing this run into four hundred and fifty volumes, and I can honestly oh, say I've read them all. Oh, and God. many of them are re many of them are recapitulations of trials of other people going back into the sort of late forties, essentially in Germany, uh, other culprits. But anyway, it never got to trial because on the first day when he was being taken from his prison cell into the court, it was via a sort of fifth floor gangway and he jumped off it. Oh, wow. Killed wow. himself and never got to trial. Uh, wow. But I vividly remember sitting there amidst all these papers. And then I went to work in various um, psychiatric asylums where they'd killed the patients. That was a very strange experience because some of them were still functioning asylums. I always remember a man coming up to me and saying how much he liked my striped shirt and could he have it? And of course, it's no good. It's no good trying to respond to somebody who's basically been in the psychiatric asylum their whole life because it's as if they don't even see you. Mm. I did get the shirt incidentally. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, did your did your research bring you to interesting places? Then would travel be formed a part of the? Lots of things. In fact, the book I'm I'm sort of trying to put together, or I'm not putting it well, to sort of plan it at the moment, which is about the peace of Brest-Litovsk and the aftermath of that in Eastern Europe. Unfortunately, I couldn't possibly go to Belarus or Russia under present circumstances. I might never yeah, come back. This <laughs> is not going to happen. Uh, so it's it's a quite a strange experience writing about this this old brick fortress, which is of no strategic interest to anybody, but it's in Belarus, and I suspect mm. I shouldn't go there. Well, I won't be going there, you can't. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. yeah. But is that usually what you do then? Do you feel like you, you have to go to these places? Yeah, and in many, in many cases, I, it's quite helpful just to actually go and see. It's not essential. For example, yeah. in, in small wars, faraway places, I, I write pretty convincingly about the Philippines, but I've never been to the Philippines. Mm -hmm. And the reason I write about it well, I think, is because it just caught my imagination. I, I really didn't know anything about what was going on there in the 1950s mm -hmm. or 60s. And so I just wrote very effectively about the Philippines. If it's somewhere mm -hmm. I just can't get my head around, I mean, I'll, I'll make a confession. There's one country mm -hmm. I just cannot understand. Well, two, actually. One's Nigeria and the other mm -hmm. one is Indonesia. 
And no matter how I try and how many books I read, I just don't understand them. Um, right. Interesting. You, you refer, you, talking about those books, you know, you refer to, to modern terrorism's roots in the mid-19th century, the marriage of the Irish Fenians, for example. Yeah, 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 yeah. So would that have brought you to Ireland at some stage? I have been, to, yeah, I've been to both North and South Ireland. I've, I've quite enjoyed mm. it, but um, I've never really done any sort of, I went to Northern Ireland to do some, do some journalism actually on various things, but um, I haven't really done much work on Ireland. I sort of, Ireland comes up in my work a lot though, as a type of, um, mm. it, it, it's much more influential on things which I come across in the course of doing European history than actually I ever thought it would be. Ditto mm. the Boers in South Africa, the Afrikaans. Yeah. Because you forget that actually in both cases, I mean, both Irish nationalism and the Boers, you know, the, the Germans, the, the Kaiser backed them all because, of course, they were, you know, fighting the British. So, of course, my enemy's enemy is my friend. And yeah. I got very interested in, in the, the influence they had on um, people like Pilsudski in Poland, you know, the, the first leader of independent Poland after the First World War. These people were quite influenced by the Irish rebellion against the British because their own rebellion was against the Russians. So all that mm. sort of those interconnections are very interesting. And actually, to come back mm. to the Irish themselves, I mean, I don't know whether they teach this in Ireland, but I was quite surprised by um, the extent to which people like Michael Collins were very influenced by Finnish revolutionaries against the Russians, because they waged a type of campaign of assassination in the late 19th century against Russian governors. And he knew all about mm. Finnish revolutionaries. So these things are much more interconnected. Absolutely. In a way, we see it and teach it through a very narrow lens without yeah. realizing that these people were part of international movements. They read the newspapers, you know, they learned about these things. And we just don't really go there at all. It's probably just laziness or lack of imagination. Yeah, well, that's it. There's two, two connected points right there, if I understand the, yeah. the concept of guerrilla warfare. Yeah. I think, am I correct in saying that that was the, the war initiated that kind of uh, yeah, yeah, well, yeah. warfare? Yeah. And then, and well, then you could say you could go way back beyond that, and you could say the Apaches and the Comanches did, you know, right? The, fair point, uh, that's a fair point, yeah. Uh, that's what they did but, rather than stand and fight, they, they would hit and run. But then, like, that, yeah. that was a tactic that was deliberately employed in Ireland against the, the British occupation. Was yeah, if you, were, if, you were fighting, if you were fighting a much, much bigger better arm better finance force then clearly you would do that you know why wouldn't you you'd die yeah. if you have an open conflict with them i think that's you know everybody would do that you'd yeah. fight them there were irregular fighters i mean if you think of the um peninsula the war in the napoleonic wars i mean the spanish didn't have much had they come out and actually fought napoleon's army they would have been absolutely mm. destroyed so the yeah. best way to do it was guerrilla attacks that's yeah. fairly logical. Yeah. That's right. I would like to take just a moment to thank all the Hipstorian followers for your support during the first five months of the show. Both myself and Neil are delighted that so many of you are enjoying what we do here. We plan to continue and expand our efforts into the future. As you can probably appreciate, it does cost to produce the show and we have been funding this ourselves. There is a link within the episode where you can make a one-time, one-euro enjoyment donation. And we'd very much welcome uh, any donations at all. In fact, we will be offering a paid subscription tier. More on that later. And anyhow, if uh, you don't have it, don't worry. Keep tuning in. We'll be here. Thinking of renovating or extending your home this year? Perhaps something a little smaller. New bathroom, new kitchen, help with soft furnishings? will look no further than Nine Yards Design Interior Design Studio. Based in Dublin 14, their services are for clients who want help planning and creating a beautiful interior for their home. They can do everything from designing the initial concept 
scaled drawings, lighting design, colour schemes, soft furnishings and bespoke furniture through to styling at completion. They have a wealth of experience working on different size projects from one room to a full redevelopment and can offer their services nationwide. So if you're looking for a touch of class or that's something a little bit different that sets you apart from the rest, check out their work at nineyardsdesign.ie. And then on uh, your most your, your latest book on populism, so I, I'm interested in your views, certainly on, you know, at which point do you think this is going to, uh, I suppose, uh, blow itself out? Because uh, we seem to be, it's, it's a trend, obviously, that's been building uh, over the last number of years. Um, and it seems to me it's on some bit of a, a tipping point now as to where it may, may go. What do you think? Well, I think the the big danger is you, you could see this already during the state mandated lockdowns that there were you know that gave it a bit of a sort of boost of life or blue blue on the embers as it were you know people rejecting lockdowns etc or vaccination that's one thing and then you can see it now with the energy crisis and also you know anti sanctions on russia etc etc it's having another sort of boost and the most disturbing thing is the way in which mainstream conservatives are colluding with these people and entering into coalition governments with them, which we've just seen in the elections in Sweden, yeah. uh, where the conservatives of moderates have gone into government or will do with the Sweden Democrats. And unfortunately, next weekend, the Italians are going to follow exactly the same path, you know, with Forza Italia and um, mm. uh, the... Uh, Salvini's Lega going into government under under Giorgio Maloney. He's basically a fascist. In Britain, we don't don't quite have this phenomenon because um, basically the populists have become part of the Conservative Party, so it's become a populist party or a very yeah. substantial, powerful wing of it. So you know there aren't really sort of fascist alternatives to this. Although you know Farage would like to see himself as such, but they're already in the inside the tent, as it were. So yeah, it's not going to yeah. be quite. It, it, I mean, it, Ireland, well, in Ireland, Ireland you're, you're, it is. We've got a populist uh, a populist party here that's most likely going to take take power, um, and and they would have fought a very socialist agenda, obviously, for for much of their existence. It's a Sinn Féin. Sinn Féin, yeah, 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 and and interesting. I've never quite understood why in Ireland you've got two Conservative parties, basically. Yeah, yeah. I'm really puzzled. At one, point, at one point, I really put a lot of effort into trying to explain to myself the differences between Fianna Fáil and Fianna Gael, and it, it did yeah. seem like having two Conservative parties, but with a different sort of historical pedigree. Yes. That, that, that's all. That, that, that's and all a, weak, a weak Labour Party. It's never really... Well, really not, non-existent Labour Party now. They're, they're almost... They were decimated in, in the, when, when the time of the financial crash. Is that um, but it's the industry was in the North in the past, historically? The, yeah, you know, correct. The industrial correct. proletariat would have been in the North. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. Yeah, yeah, and it's kind of changing now. And interest, we we were speaking to a guest who you know would have been um, a member of the IRA and would still be staunchly socialist, um, yeah. and he would, had very strong views on the fact that Sinn Fein have you know literally become totally populist. Uh, they they are nothing to do with the party that represented Republicans in, in the past. Um, yeah. And it was interesting just when you were talking because I mean I, I had you know obviously having read your works and knowing you would only speak to yourself, you know I had been thinking through the whole conversation about you know his morality, you know how he mm. felt, mm -hmm. uh, you know, things that he did were justified. And when you put yourself in those positions, you know you can always there's an always always an argument i mean we're talking about humanity anyway and yeah. I, I think we, we talked about earlier about the narrow view that's taught in schools you know I, I don't think it's helpful i think it's much more helpful to to teach a broader view and uh, get people thinking about the consequences of actions because narrow yeah. views don't do that a broader view might help people make better decisions so would you say that Sinn Féin have become less nationalist and more socialist uh, I no well I know nationalists very very much so yeah. um, much less socialist though it, they they are now just they are running the gauntlet to get into power and that, that is it they have a PR company um, writing every you know scripting every single word that they say in front of the cameras 
Um, they are camera sh both camera shy, uh, and uh, essentially all they want is to get into power and drive the United Ireland um, agenda. And and which which Ireland? In, okay, I'll express my own views here. I don't think Ireland is ready for that. You know, there's a, like the you know the, the the unionists in Northern Ireland certainly are not ready to accept uh, United. Well, no, you don't want them in your parliament. That'd be a catastrophe for well, you. <laughs> yeah. I mean, half of them are raving mad who believe yeah. they're uh, the worst dinosaurs or something. I mean, what do you want them in the parliament? And then imagine yeah, yeah. the more serious thing is the um, you know the cost of the welfare state and health in Northern Ireland, which yeah, is picking huge. up. Your taxes yeah. would have to go through the roof to pay for that. Yeah, correct. Yeah. yeah. What would you want that for? Yeah, no, indeed. And then I but then there are as well as the counter to that is what part of England want to be carrying that, that around for it's a burden, it's a noose around the neck. Well, it's a burden for everybody, isn't it? It's it a burden is. for yeah. you, it's a burden for us. So I don't yeah. they don't seem to get that message there very, very clearly, our patriotic loyalist friends. Mm, yeah. They're actually regarded <laughs> as a, a sort of inconvenience for everybody. But anyway, maybe that's I shouldn't say that. I don't know. <laughs> that's fine. You can say what you like in this podcast. Can, that's, that's, that's exactly what we're all about, yeah. Michael, you know. Yeah. Considering um your your dad's service, I'm sorry, what, what age were you when he passed away? About um eight, nine, something like that. Okay, um, yeah. but you would have been aware of his military background and yeah, 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 yeah. But I mean, he, he was just you know, no, no, no. no. He, he was he was conscripted into the Seaforth Highlanders in the First World War. Actually, his three older brothers, who are actually my uncles, they all got killed in the First World War in different you know different oh, uh, nice. engagements. Mm -hmm. They're actually all and um, there's a plaque, mm -hmm. plaque in a church in Clapham on the wall which commemorates them because it's quite unusual for three brothers to get killed from one family so anyway he did that and then the second second world war he was far too old to fight by then he'd be middle-aged so you know he just ran mm. a ran a um air sea rescue base in Felixstowe or something probably right okay. you know the way military traditions run through families like but, but that you know i know you're very young at the time but yeah. Was that in your DNA? Did it ever cross your mind that military service may have been? Oh real? God, no! I wouldn't want to do yeah. that under any shape or form. I, you know, mm. wouldn't interest yeah. me at all. I mean, yeah. I know plenty of people who have been in the military, but it's not something I ever wanted to do. Yeah, yeah. Probably the safer route was doing what you do. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> right. Right. Apart from knocking out two books during a during yeah. lockdown. <laughs> Well, that was very enjoyable. I mean, the assassination book, I mean, this will sound slightly paradoxical, but it was by yeah. far the most uh, fun book I've ever written in my life. I couldn't. Oh, okay. I jumped out of bed every morning to get to it, to okay. kill another person. Um, it, had all the, it had all the attractions of being like a detective doing cold cases. It had that. Really? It was very, well, because you're looking at things which are incredibly specific. Yeah, you know, did this person do this, and was it only that person, or were there mm. other people behind them? And I have to say that, at least in my own mind, for the t you know, I finished it, the actual writing of it two years ago. I actually am still rewriting it in my head and thinking, how would I put Shinzo wow. Abe in, for example, which was obviously right. wow. far too late to yeah. go in the book. But I take notes and I print out articles about it. And think, you know, how would I, how would I deal with Shinzo Abe? Which is a very interesting. I don't know whether you know anything about this, but no, he, tell us about it. Tell us, well, tell he was, us a bit about he, that. He'd been in the Japanese Navy, the assassin, and you know, just sort of ordinary sailor. And his mother, though, was set to leave him, you know, quite a big amount of money, six, seven hundred thousand pounds. You know, when she died. But the trouble is, she joined the um, the, the Moonies. You know, the Church of the Reverend Moon. Yeah. Which is South Korean, yeah, yeah. and uh, they, of course, rather like the Scientologists. They basically stole every penny she had, you know, through donations to the church. But then it turned out that that most most people in the Japanese Liberal Democratic Party, which is their Conservative Party, including Shinzo Abe, were involved in the Moonies too. And this guy decided in his fury that his inheritance had been stolen by the Moonies to make a homemade shotgun and to shoot Shinzo Abe, the former prime minister. So he did. Oh, wow. Um, and he did. He did. He killed him um, about two months yeah. ago. But um, what's interesting... Sorry, yeah. 
yeah, but yeah. what's interesting is that since the death, there's been lots of sort of reports and investigations in, into the extent of Mooney penetration of the Japanese Conservative Party, and there's Moonies all over it. It's like they've infiltrated the Japanese Conservative Party, the Moonies, this crazy church. Wow. And they're, you know, very high proportion of their MPs and their ministers were Moonies. It's absolutely extraordinary. Oh. That's, that, that it, really that is, is, but it, I think I think uh, it's a foreign church to the Japanese. You know, it's a South yeah. Korean church. Yeah. It's not Japanese. You know, they're Shintoists, the Japanese in religious terms, state mm. Shintoists, including Abe. But um, this lot seemed to have really this strange South Korean sect had really got a lock on the Japanese Conservative Party. I think, uh, I, I think religious sects of all uh, creeds have this impact and, and way of, of squirring their way into, into power, into political power. Uh, I mean, you could say yeah. much, of, much of, the, of the American Republicans and Democrats yeah, uh, have been infiltrated yeah. by various different crazy churches. You know, they're all, I mean, that's, all that, would be, that would be my main fear for the future. And it's quite disgraceful, actually, that, you know, for political reasons that I suspect neither your government nor certainly not my government ever talk about it. But I would say the real threat to democracy, I mean, I'm not bothered about Putin or about the Chinese, you know, they're never, nobody is ever going to vote for a system like that in our societies. It's just, that's a non-starter. Sure. The real threat is what's happening in the United States where one of the parties, the main political parties has basically become anti-democratic and will rig, rig the next election, or damn well try to, either by ex excluding people from voting, you know, rigging mm -hmm. the system, or more worryingly, they will actually contest the results. They'll just say it's all fake, you know, that, that, that yeah. win. Mm -hmm. And this is a really <clears throat> disturbing tendency in what, after all, is the, the biggest democracy of the lot. I mean, I don't, you know, this nonsense about India being the world's biggest democracy, I mean, it's not, it's a ghastly place with a corrupt backward, you know, you name it, I think mm. it. Um, but yeah. America is <laughs> in the, in the really States, worrying. But, but in the States, like, it's, it's not just been driven by one man, you know, one character out of history you know trump obviously is no, it no, like no it's not no 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 this has been going on this is this has been going on from for some time i think it started with the whole bertha thing with obama where they started saying oh well you know he wasn't really born in hawaii where he was born he was born in kenya and therefore isn't an american yeah mm, yeah, I, yeah. Okay. I think the whole growth of actual you know of actual I mean, look, if you if you think back to, we mentioned Eisenhower, if you think back to Eisenhower, where the John Birch Society, another lot of fruitcakes, said that he was a communist, you know, that Eisenhower was a communist, which was the worst thing you could say in the 50s about anybody. Well, nobody, mm. nobody, any, you know, no mainstream media would ever have broadcast that nonsense. You'd have to have read a John Birch Society newspaper to find it. But the difference now is, is that the biggest television network in America, which is Fox News, just remorselessly broadcast that Obama wasn't really an American. And then likewise, they remorselessly broadcast that Biden didn't win the, um, the election, which of course he did win. So this is a real yeah. difference between the 1950s and now, where they can just turn black into white, you know, and they will. And then there are lots of Republican, I mean, a disturbing number of Republican candidates for the next election think that Biden is an illegitimate president that he didn't win. They really do believe that and say it, you know, that Trump was robbed, as it were. And, and then they've gone to great lengths to rig voting systems in individual states. You know, there was the Fox, the, the outrageous, which has got Fox into a lot of trouble, actually, where they accuse these two quite big companies that make voting machines of, of rigging the voting machines. Well, happily, this has resulted in billion dollar lawsuits against Fox. I mean, that they're really in trouble about this because they, they libel these two companies. Mm. And you don't do that in America and think you're going to get away with it. They affected mm -hmm. their business. So that is really going to hit Fox badly, you know, because they've mm. just told outright lies about these two 
electronic voting machine making companies. But I, I do think that America is the place that I would, I would, I worry, I would be most worried about what's going on there. Mm. Um, well, as, long, as long as the, uh, the internet remains uh, free, podcasts might be the last bastion uh, of truth for any of us to, to go towards. Um, well, I uh, hope so. I think, yes, I think they're, they're, they play a very important role and people actually, you know, they, they listen to them and watch them or whatever you do in increasing numbers. I think that's a very good thing. There's some very good ones. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. You know, it has got better, but then again, you have to disseminate the truth from the lies when you're, which, uh, when you're listening to whatever podcast you, you may listen to. But, you know, it's been, uh, yeah. yeah, really amazing. Do you have a question? <clears throat> Just as a fellow author, Michael, I've written a few books not on the same subject, but I understand that, that in my case, it was, it was relatively rare, but the jumping out of bed first thing in the morning thing to, to get to work on your book. What other assassination in particular got you out of bed first thing in the morning to to start writing about that grabbed you um i think i was actually it was some of the more obscure ones which i i got really interested in like um the two attempts to kill um hendrik for wood who was the prime minister of south africa who basically introduced apartheid sort of nationalist mm. prime minister and there were two attempts to kill him the first one of which was by a, an English farmer, actually, you know, millionaire farmer, who um, uh, turned up at the Rand Agricultural Show in his chauffeur-driven Rolls Royce and then put a bullet into Thurvut's face because he mm. didn't like apartheid. Uh, didn't kill him, actually. And then the second attempt was by a Greek Mozambican former merchant seaman who uh, got a job as a parliamentary usher and then did actually ram a knife into Vervoort during the state opening of parliament and killed him. Um, but I got very interested in both of these cases because neither man was actually tried. They were both found to be mentally unfit, you know, mentally okay. incapable. And the first, the first one certainly did have a very long history of depression and mental illness. Um, the second one had... Um, become a merchant seaman. Well, he did come from a sort of Greek, sort of communist revolutionary background, as it happens. But he'd gone to sea, and then he'd sort of had mental breakdowns, schizophrenic attacks in most of the ports that he docked in. Uh, because, of course, that then meant that he went to an asylum in the country concerned and overstayed his welcome. So when he came to Britain, <laughs> Um, they put him, first of all, in a sort of miserable asylum in Paddington in London. He didn't like it. But then he found out about a luxury asylum on the Isle of Wight and had himself transferred there. So you could never quite tell quite what was going on. And apparently it had to do with mm. an Irish fellow inmate in one of his early asylum stints called Tom Tuff. And he said to him, look, there's no good you telling the psychiatrist that you hear the voice of God from the radiator because they've heard that a hundred times and that doesn't float their boat. You've got to tell them something really interesting, which they can write scientific <laughs> papers. About. So this guy, Dimitri Sofendas was his name, he brought up this idea that there was a tapeworm in his stomach, which was communicating with him and giving him instructions. So you are never quite sure whether he was mad or whether this was all just faking insanity, you can't ever quite tell in, in his case. But he did, he did, he did kill Vervoort. Um, it's a very interesting case, and I got I got mm. tremendously interested in that, as you might expect. Thanks. Yeah, and it makes a great story. Um, brilliant, brilliant. Just did you mention well, I earlier? To tell it. I, I wrote the book as a series of stories. Both about somebody who just got up in the morning, you know, had breakfast with the kids and then went out to sort of make a speech or open a building or, you know, whatever. Um, like, you know, William McKinley went to the American trade fair in Buffalo in upstate New York. As far as he knew, he was just going to a trade fair for the day with his wife. And then some, some Polish anarchist um, stabbed him to death or shot him rather in the course of the day. So I got just very interested in those people, the, the victims of assassination, how their day unfolded. And then, of course, the people who killed them and how their day unfolded and why they did it. Yeah. So it's an interesting, yeah. it's just really focusing on what happened on that particular day, which, of course, was life changing for both people.
For both people, yeah. Yeah, and it was like an ancient, I mean, the word is... Yeah, well, I bet it's a very ambitious book because I began, I thought, where am I going to start this? And I thought, well, Julius Caesar is the obvious mm, yeah. sort of almost classical assassination. And mm. luckily, actually, that, that, that um, I got very, very interested in that. And uh, uh, luckily, to go back to that World War I committee I was on, uh, mm. we had to go to some, we had to go to some very sort of... Um, uh, impressive um, ceremony in, in Westminster um, Abbey, actually. And, um, you know, the Queen and the then Prince Charles were at it, and David Cameron was the Prime Minister, blah blah But we were sitting, our committee was sitting in the choir up at the front, and because it was alphabetical, I found myself next to Mary Beard. Uh -huh, and we had okay. to get there very early. We had to get there very early because, it, you know, it was a big, big deal. So for two hours, she explained to me the assassination of Caesar and what I shouldn't bother reading, which was a godsend. <laughs> told me lots of books I shouldn't waste my time on. So that, that was an absolute godsend to have her there telling me that for a couple of hours. And, but even so, I mean, there are five pages or six pages about the assassination of Caesar. And I swear to God, it involved about six months reading before I felt competent, even mm. half competent, to write about Roman history. I mean, you really yeah. have to put the man hours in if you want to do what I do for a living. And ditto, uh, you know, I, I did some stuff on the gunpowder plot and Guy Fawkes mm. and James the First. That was another six months. It got easier as the book came towards the present. Mm. Uh, yeah, yeah. You'd more to tap into. Yeah, yeah. Well, when I got on to more familiar ground, you know, some of it I do know pretty well. So uh, yeah. And Kennedy was Kennedy was a hell of a lot of work because there's so much nonsense written about it. Yeah, um, absolutely. Like, and, and, I, th and I think my my heart my heart sank when I realised that Norman Mailer had written an 800-page biography of Lee Harvey Oswald, yeah. <laughs> which I've read. I bet you haven't read that. No, we haven't. No, we haven't. <laughs> but, but 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 as a journalist, like the challenge there is to bring something new to the table to move to move on yeah. the story, as as we say in the trade. So, you know, yeah, yeah, yeah. Jimmy, that was your challenge there. That was the challenge. And the way I did that was uh, I did it two ways. Uh, one was to look at an assassination where there was undoubtedly a very, very deep state um, come ideological conspiracy to kill somebody, which was the 33 attempts to murder Charles de Gaulle. Yes. Okay, There were 33 attempts to kill de Gaulle. And that, that is where you're looking at a real conspiracy, a large conspiracy by a large number of people, many of whom, when they got caught by the French police or intelligence mm. services, made no bones about what they were doing. They said, yes, we wanted to kill him, and they went to prison or whatever. In the case of Kennedy, if you read some of these books, you think, wow, there must have been this bast. You know, if you have the sort of Oliver Stone view of Kennedy's killing. You think, yeah, there must have been some vast conspiracy, but how come nobody on their deathbed or when they were drunk in the bar has said, mm. well, actually, mm. I was fast conspiracy to kill Kennedy. That's the first thing I did was the De Gaulle comparison. Mm. And then secondly, I got very interested in the fact that about six months before he shot Kennedy, Lee Harvey Oswald had tried to shoot um, General Edward Walker, who was the head of the John Birch Society sitting at his house one night doing his tax returns in a very brightly illuminated room. And Oswald used the same rifle, the Mandica Carcano rifle, to take a shot at Walker. But because the lights were on, he didn't see there was like a wooden strut across the window and the bullet got deflected by the strut and just grazed through his hair, I think, actually. It would have blown his head off otherwise. And, uh, you know, I thought, well, Yes, there he is. And why aren't we ever talking about the fact that he tried to murder this man who he thought was a sort of leading American fascist six months before he took a shot at Kennedy? Uh, yeah. That was the, the thing that made me think. <clears throat> and then he, was, he, he clearly was obsessed with Kennedy, who was everything he wasn't. You know, Kennedy was a part of a huge type of successful clan of people. You know, it was a very clan Irish type of bunch of people, the yeah. Kennedys. And you know, he was supposed to be the most sexy man in the world and on the front cover of Time magazine with his beautiful wife, da 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 And you could see that Oswald would think, right, you know, who, who the hell am I? I'm just a nobody. 
and I'll get my 15 minutes of fame by shooting him. And he was very ideologically confused as well of peculiar views, if you look at, look at them. And should we issue a spoiler alert to readers of your book, Did He Act Alone? Uh, yes, I think he did act alone. And he even took a bus. He took a bus. He couldn't drive, by the way, which is why he couldn't get a job in Texas. He was unable to drive. I have some fellow feeling because I can't drive either, but, um, <laughs> but he, he, he's the only assassin I know took the bus. <laughs> yeah. The only assassin took the bus. Brilliant, Michael. And before I wrap it up, did you mention earlier you're working on something at the moment? I am. I'm, I'm, uh, I'm at the stage of sort of, thank God, I've spent about two months putting together a, a very, you know, it's about a 45-page proposal about about the the run-up to and the aftermath of the peace of Brest-Litovsk in March okay. 1918 and about yeah. it's really about how how an independent Poland Ukraine and the Baltic states were actually created by the central powers by by the Germans and the Austrians and the Turks rather than by the good guys as it were the all good. these states were brought into being by by them in order to keep Russia out of the way in perpetuity um, uh, at a time when Russia was very weak. So that's that's the book I'm going to that's the book. Well, we hope the helicopters will let you get back to it yeah. and focus on it. <laughs> oh, they've gone now, thank God. They've gone. They've no. gone now. So <laughs> no. you're, you're, you're there's there's a great you. joke. There's a great description of a hangover. I think it was P.G. Woodhouse. They said somebody said to him, how are you feeling after that long session last night? And he said, oh, it's fine. I can hear the butterflies thundering around in the garden. <laughs> and that's how, that's how I feel after the damn helicopters the damn all helicopter. over the sky. We've all been there. Yeah. Michael, well, what, a, what an absolutely pleasure and honour yeah. to have you on. As I said, one of the heavyweights. And um, I hope you, you take that the, yeah. the way it's intended. I am heavy. Um, I am heavy. Great, great honour. And... Um, yeah, we look forward to putting this out. And, yeah, fantastic, um, yeah. And hopefully we'll see you again sometime, perhaps. We'll stay in touch. Yeah, no, perhaps after my next book comes out. All right, then. Well, it's lovely to meet you, guys. I hope Thank your you. ankles... Take care. Thank you. All right, Thank bye, you. bye, bye, bye. bye.